Beatles, and welcome to Beatles Stuffology, where two old friends sit about and talk about Beatles stuff on a track-by-track basis, pretty much for the sake of it. My name is JG McQuarrie, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Andrew Deacon. Say hi, Andrew. Hello. Ready for our second episode? Um, yeah, yeah, and it's funny that we're starting, I suppose, episode number two with a PS, which should come at the end. Yes, yes, excellent. So, um, yeah, well, obviously a bit of a giveaway, but that means this week we are going to be talking about P.S. I Love You, uh, the B-side to uh, our first entry, Love Me Do. Um, so, yeah, how how are you finding... We did kind of mention the song a little bit the last episode, but um, let's get the formalities out of the way. What do you think of it? I think that's that's what I think about it. It's a... Um... It's one of the best 30-second songs um, that was probably around in 1962 and 1963. The fact that they managed to stretch it out to two minutes, I think, possibly diminishes its impact slightly. But um, it's it's one of those those funny little songs, isn't it, where you can see that there's uh, um, hints about those sort of old ballads almost. It sort of draws on the past, but there's little hints as well of what's to come, in particular from the the harmonies. So it's another one of those songs that's kind of very much of its era and yet drawing on on the past and showing some signs of what's still going to come in, you know, in what we might call the good Beatles periods. Yeah, or, or not 1962. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, I basically, I go along with most of that, I think. Um, it's one of those songs that... Um, like, one of the things that the Beatles are so good at, and this is hardly a revelatory observation, but I'll say it anyway, is how good they are at doing B-sides. And obviously we'll get into this once we sort of climb up to sort of 1965 and onwards. But, you know, there's so much good material here. Whereas, you know, P.S. I Love You is, is fine as a sort of disposable little ditty, but it, there's not a lot of meat in the bone. And and I suppose that's kind of fine for a B-side. Um, you, don't, you don't necessarily you know, lose your best material uh, on, on, on the side that not everybody will bother to flip over to. But it's still, yeah, 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 there's not a lot of meat in the bone and it's a shame that it's not, uh, I don't know, it's a shame it's not just a little bit more. I think it's it's really hard to talk about these songs individually, which is kind of a bit of a shame as that's the whole point of this podcast is to talk about them individually. But there's a lot of, um, you know, talk about songs like um, I suppose Octopus's Garden or Maxwell's Silver Hammer, and about how these songs are among the worst in in you know the Beatles canon. In particular, I think people point to just how many days Paul McCartney made the rest of the Beatles slog through uh, takes of um, Maxwell's Silver Hammer until we got it right. Yeah. But compare Maxwell's Silver Hammer to this. I, I quite like Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Um, but compare it to this, it's it's a no contest. You know, it, it shows so much more craft and ingenuity. But then that's another, what, four or five years down the line. So, of course, it would do. Actually, probably six years down the line. But let's not worry about my maths. Um, you know, so in terms of the Beatles and, you know, the songs that they wrote, it's not a classic. There are lots more that are a lot better. But, you know, you can still have some fun with it. Before we rip into why it's a bag of nonsense, where's the fun with it? I'm throwing that back um, at you now. Well, you mentioned the harmonies, and I think that kind of is like if you're going to try and like pick out the sort of the better features of the song, then that is a really good place to begin with it because the harmonies are the bit of the song that I think does have some spark to it. It feels like I don't want to. 
I don't want to suggest that the rest of the song is, is kind of lazy or that the effort isn't being put in, because I don't think that's true. But you can hear that there's extra effort being put in in the harmonies. Um, and given that they're going to go on to be such a distinctive feature, you know, uh, on, on the album, it makes sense that this is going to be kind of one of the, the sort of defining characteristics of, of these kind of songs. And um, yeah, the vocals are, are like, it's they work really well and it's sort of fairly close harmony as well it's not it's not kind of you know like twist and shout or anything like that where they're, where they're really not close harmonies um so it just kind of that that bit of it works i i find paul's lead vocal a little winsome if i'm honest it's it's a little twee but then again it's sort of meant to be so i mean he is he is landing that characteristic of the song i think it's I know it's something that McCartney comes in for a, a lot of criticism for, sometimes deservedly so, but I think one of his great sort of skills is as a pastiche writer. And this is a pastiche song. You know, it, 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 it's, it, you know it's, it owes its debt to things like Please Mr. Postman and kind of like all those sort of letter songs, which were you know, a feature of the charts back then. And, and it's a pastiche of that. And it's a really good pastiche of that even if the actual end result isn't necessarily a really good song. I, I get the feeling that, that if you listen to it, um, say the end of the, the very first section, I can't really, don't really want to call it um, um, verse because it doesn't really have verse, chorus, verse structure to it, does it? But that first bit where McCartney is singing, be in love with you, you can actually hear the smirk. Yes, <laughs> you, can, you can just sort of see you know, he's, he's sort of leaning into the um, here you can, he's leaning into the microphone, eyebrow raised, going, "I know this is a bit, mm. but you know, I'm I'm just going to go with it." On the harmonies, I think whether or not this is actually true, the way I hear it, you know, um, say for example, in the treasure these few words till we're together, it sounds like presumably John, maybe it's George as well, are only singing perhaps every other word or every third word. Yeah. So, you know, there's the, it kind of emphasizes key parts of, of the line, which if that, if that is what they're doing is, is, you know, really clever. They're not just sort of going, you know, to, to sing every single word, every single note in a particular harmony, but they're actually thinking about what they're doing as they're doing it, which, you know, considering how early this is in their recording career, it's, it's quite something. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that, and I think one of the one of the ways that that cleverness comes across is the fact that I mean, particularly compared to um, "Love Me Do," which I was mentioning in the last episode, only has two and a half chords in it, but there's like ten or eleven chords, and they're shuffled around pretty effectively in this. So that just purely in, in sort of musical terms, there is some degree of cleverness. The verses are just, I think, G and D. They're really straightforward, but once you get into kind of um, once you get into the song, it, it's got that um, that little extra in the musical side, which does give it that variety. Now, again, that is slightly drawing on the on the fact that it's it's a pastiche, so it needs to have that kind of little extra sort of mileage in it. But again, it does it does work, and there is some cleverness. It's not just a, like you said; it's not a verse chorus song. It's got a different kind of structure, and and the way that the the um, the chords kind of work in the way that they sort of push together. There's nothing really complicated or there's not like some weird fifth jazz diminished nonsense going on there. They're all, it's all pretty straightforward, but it's straightforward stuff, which is arranged 
in an interesting fashion. Um, so it, I think it does tell, and again, you, you, you're quite right about the, the emphasis and the harmonies, that you can tell that some thought has been put into it. And again, the end is fairly lightweight. The end result for all that cleverness still doesn't, it's not, it's not wholly convincing. But yeah, again, I'm not convinced that it's really meant to be. I, I can imagine um, that a modern day artist, if they had this as their B-side or, or you know, padding out an album, if such things still exist, would play it on the Spanish guitar. For some reason, I can imagine, especially with the, the chord structure and, and the way it jumps around, it's a Spanish guitar type song, you know, and, and someone wandering around restaurant tables, serenading couples who are desperate for the guitarist to go away. That's how I picture this song being played, really. Well, and I think that, that sort of cha-cha beat that it's got to it, because it's, again, it's not Ringo on drums here, it's, it's Andy White again, and, and it's got that kind of cha-cha beat, and that, that yeah, that you can you can kind of hear a flamenco guitar on it. You can hear something which has got that, you know, lots of puffy skirts and too much Rioja going on. And, and yeah, I, I imagine, I'd be very surprised if there isn't cover versions which, which have been done in precisely that way. But, yeah, the whole, the whole feel of the song does have that kind of, emphasis on it and again i think it's another example of a of, of a song which i don't want to say it lacks for ringo because i'm not sure that's exactly accurate but i think if it was ringo on drums rather than andy white i don't think it would have gone for like a straightforward kind of cha-cha sort of shuffly kind of rhythm pattern because that does that does push the song in a particular direction regardless like like uh, mccartney's bass is, is quite well developed on this song but it's not a I'm not sure it's a straight fit for a kind of cha-cha beat, uh, but that's what the song's got. Um, I don't really think that beat does the song a lot of favours, so I, and I, I'm I'm sure it wouldn't be done that way if it was if it was Ringo and drums. So it is another example of yeah, you know, the the musicians that you have playing on the song really do make a difference to the end result. I'd like to think that this song is a work of genius, and uh, but I think the work of genius comes from the fact that they managed to make thirty seconds last two minutes. Um, and but in their favour, in the you know, because I'm sure you know McCartney and, and Ringo Starr are sitting around just desperately waiting for my validation. The fact that each time they repeat those thirty seconds, they add something different. At least shows an awareness of the need to build to offer something slightly different. Because there's no difference in terms of um, the lyrical content. It is just emphasising the same things the same emotions the same beats over and over again but just adding in something different so even though you might be a little bit bored go oh god here we go round again you know by the time you've got to about a minute 30 i think you've been round three times and you think mm, okay what are they going to do now guitar solo maybe maybe no oh we're going round again okay fair enough but at least they're offering something different in terms of perhaps another um guitar line um, something slightly different in terms of McCartney's vocal, where he's you know he's going off into some sort of descant territory, you know, and there's something there to to try and engage the listener, which, as as we will keep remarking, sixty two, sixty three, compare it to you know what's around, and and at least you've got something that is potentially a little bit fresh, even if by modern standards you're listening to it going, is that it? Because the instrumentation is actually really sparse as well, which I think is is quite striking. I mean, the lyrics are sparse, but the instrumentation, there's not a huge amount going on that you can really draw on in the mix. There's no um, trademark McCartney bass line, for example, that, that I can hear anyway. 
perhaps you've been listening to a version where it's it's slightly more dialed up than mine, but it feels like it's pretty slight on instruments. Yeah, it definitely is slight on instruments. There's no doubt about it. Whether that's a, a time pressure or just like how primitive um, you know recording techniques were, I, as far as I know, this was recorded to two tracks. So there's not a lot of scope. Once things are down, there's not a lot of scope to go back. And uh, but then saying that, I, I mean, it's the same technology that was used for something like I saw standing there, and that's a much more. There's a lot more going on there, but you know, again, it's like it's a B-side, and it's a B-side in 1962. It wasn't being put together for the album; it was recorded and then subsequently used in the album. So it's kind of a, a slightly different situation, I suppose. And as far as the instrumentation and the sparseness of it is concerned, I think that might almost be to the song's advantage because I think if it, I think if it was if there was more on it, I think if it was um, busier, I think it would feel very cluttered. And a bit claustrophobic, maybe. Whereas, as it stands, there's at least a little bit of space. You know what it reminds me of, actually? I'm sorry, tangent time. Um, it reminds me of the song Denise by Blondie, um, which is the same. It's about two minutes long. It doesn't do anything. And she's she, and Debbie Harry is, has to resort to singing in French in order to give the song somewhere to go by the time it runs out of steam. That's what it reminds me of, and it's a, it's a, it's obviously it's a, an effective technique here, and the fact that that thirty seconds is strung out to two songs, but it is it's a technique which other bands will also use in precisely the same manner. Um, but I think with yeah, I think with this with the instrumentation, I I I, I don't know that I want any more instruments. So yeah, the bass should be higher. There should be there should be a, a greater sort of clarity and that kind of thing. But I don't know that I want that much more on it because I think it would suffocate what's there. It's such a it's such a featherweight kind of song. It would be very easy for it to, to sort of drown under the, the, the burden of too much instrumentation. So um, are you aware, I mean, just kind of doing that, that quick kind of Googling, I promise you I was listening, that uh, actually Denis, Denise, that's actually a song from 63. Yeah, it's a cover version. Yeah, by an American doo-wop group, it says here. Um, okay, I didn't realise that. I was, um, I was just looking it up because I know... Previously, dear listener, you won't be aware of this, but Grant and I have sort of discussed other songs at other times, and uh, there were some Blondie songs that were written by um, was it Nicky Chin and oh Chin and Chapman, who were sort of yeah. British, um, you know, classic pop hit writers from from the seventies. So I was just diving in to see if it was it was one of theirs, and surprised myself. So um, yeah, kind of interesting that there were other things around at the time. And you happen to pick on one that was around at the time. Just happened. It's yeah. almost <laughs> as though you planned that. Almost, very nearly, almost. Yeah, um, but I, I, I don't really mean it as a criticism. That's the thing. Like uh, Denise is not Blondie's best song by by any stretch of the imagination. Um, neither is uh, P.S. I Love You the, the the best Beatles song by any stretch of the imagination. But like I say, clearly it's a technique that works and it can it can stand the stand the test of time. Well, um, you know, on yeah. that there was there was a point many years ago where I um, wrote a blog read by hardly anyone in which I tried to argue the case that any song could be the best song in the world for 15 minutes. Sort of an Andy Warhol type thing that anyone could be famous. You know, and, you know, there are lots of songs on there that clearly aren't the best song ever, but for a period of time, in a particular um, uh, mindset, at a particular moment, and a particular emotional reaction, a particular feeling that you've got, there could be a song 
that is just the most wonderful thing. Just for example, the example I can think of at the moment um, is Kirsty McCall's um, They Don't Know, which is a great pop song. But the reason why at that particular time um, that it was, it was just for me the greatest one ever was because I was really taken by the fact that um, after the, the instrumental, there is a moment where there's a pause before Kirsty McCall hits a high note on Baby. And it is just glorious. It is of the moment, but it's also very Motowny. And it's just one of, if you're in the right frame of mind, it is just perfection. But most of the rest of the, the time, you know, it's just a, a decent pop song. The reason for mentioning that is that I cannot imagine any circumstances under which PSI Love You would be the greatest song ever, even for 15 <laughs> minutes. But bear in mind, if it was for 15 minutes, that means they're repeating the same three sections um, probably about 55 times. And you cannot vary that 55 times. You know, if it gets irritating after two or three, just imagine what it's like if you've been listening to that on loop for 15 minutes. That, my friend, would be the kind of torture that Americans would use at Guantanamo. Yeah, or, or, or the Beatles might use at um, What's the New Mary Jane. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but I, I mean, I, I, I completely agree. I think it's, it is very hard to imagine, even in 1963, if you ask somebody, oh, what's your favourite Beatles song? They're going to turn around and say, oh, P.S. I love you. Um, even in 1963, I'm having a hard time thinking that there was anybody out there who would claim that. I mean, yeah, it is what it is. It does its thing. I, I find it interesting that we've, we've managed to get this far into it without referring to one of the other reasons why it's not exactly the greatest song in the Beatles canon. It's not even the greatest song in the Beatles canon for 1962, which is... The words, or shall I say, <laughs> them words, uh, for greater accuracy. Um, now, I, I've, you know, we talk about the fact that you shouldn't be too critical. Bearing in mind, this is the greatest pop slash rock band, well, pop band of all time. But the lyrics are um, slightly lacking in logic. And in fact, at this point, if we had a, a sound effect for a logic alert, um, I think I would go for it. So. Here's the point, okay? Paul McCartney has written this letter. He said, "I've, I, you know, as I write this letter, send my love to you." Why is he putting, therefore, his love in the P.S.? You don't need to put your love in the P.S. The whole letter is about how I love you. What's the point of adding in P.S. I love you? I don't get it. What are you doing? It just, you know, so the letter basically says, hi, darling, I'm away at the moment. I'll be back soon. And I love you lots. P.S. I love you. Somebody please want to tell Mr. McCartney that that's not great structure when it comes to letter writing. I'm I'm not sure how over-invested Mr. McCartney was in the idea of lyrical structure at this point in his career. But, I mean, yeah, you're not wrong. Um, it is, it's a pretty... Well, I'm I'm trying very hard not to use the word trite, um, or or callow, um, callow sentiments or trite sentiments, but you know also that. Do we feel in a forgiving mood if we say that this is a a pastiche song and so he's pastiching the style of those kind of, um, letter writing songs that would that would have the same kind of 
cornball sort of uh, lyrical writing, or are we just or just slag it off because you know, come on, you should be uh, put a twist on it or do something. Don't just reproduce it as is. Well, at least he's um, not sitting yeah. right down to write himself a letter or or returning to sender. I guess you know. So um, yeah, I know it's look. It's one of those things. I'm I'm very much of the school. As I think I said in the first episode that actually when it comes to it, the lyrics don't really matter. Um, a huge amount to me because I don't really listen that closely to the lyrics and I often get the lyrics wrong um, but again when you've got as few words as you have in this and um, you know you, you sort of then draw attention to the fact that your lyrics are not exactly wonderful but then you know who in 1962 1963 was writing deep and meaningful lyrics about the nature of existence and later on in the Beatles career an awful lot of those lyrics that you know, people might go, "Oh, John, he's so deep and meaningful." He would admit, "Well, I got it from a newspaper article." So they're not necessarily, or you know, my six-year-old child said that phrase, and I put it in, and now you will think it refers to something else. You know, so there is that sense of, um, you know, they're not writing poetry. But then, who was writing poetry? I mean, presumably uh, Bob Dylan was off the market at this stage. But it's also that thing that you, that sense of. Um cultural isolation just doesn't exist anymore i i was bob Dylan's first album 62 or 63 i don't remember and i suppose um i suppose woody guthrie or something would still have been around but that stuff just didn't make it across the atlantic i mean we're not going to repeat all the usual cliches about well liverpool was a port town and they got blah 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 blah. you know that doesn't require restating but that, that cultural isolation just doesn't there's no modern equivalent of that. And it's interesting you mentioned Return to Sender because Return to Sender was the biggest selling single in 1962. Um, and by some distance, it's it's not Elvis's greatest song, but, you know, by, by post-army standards, it's not completely, you know, terrible. But yeah, that's, that's you know, for a letter-writing song. A letter-writing song was the biggest song of the year. Um, so that's, again, you know, talk about context or whatever, but that's that's the context into which this little ditty was was launched yeah dylan's dylan's first album was 62 but um you know it was sort of developing that folk tradition but this is that pop tradition or rather the start of that pop tradition and you know it's not deep and meaningful it's about a feeling and and an emotion and and a rhythm as well which is not really a, a dylan strong suit so you know people did sit down and worship at the altar of dylan's lyrics but then also Dylan would mock them for sitting down and worshipping at the altar of his lyrics. Um, you know, he'd also write a whole bunch of, of, of love songs. But, you know, here we, it's, it's, it's different. You know, this is a song that you might try to dance to, that you might sort of share a moment with rather than, than build an, a narrative around. And that first Dylan album as well, there, there's very few original, I think maybe only one or two original Dylan compositions. There's a lot of trad are by, um, you know, Bob Dylan. So it's a very different um, sort of album to perhaps some of the ones like Freewheeling Bob Dylan, which would come next, which is the kind of thing that perhaps really kind of kicked off his, um, you know, his fame, uh, as it were. So um yeah i mean i guess there weren't that many musical genres around at the time no that's that's absolutely true and and you know when you're talking about the rhythm but this also um you know it sounds i think we talked mentioned this a little bit in the last episode but this sounds like a song which has been 
written to be played in a dance hall, not necessarily in the cavern. You know, this. You know, if if you're if you're uh, on tour and you're supporting Helen Shapiro, you know, this is a song which will help to get her audience on your side, and then maybe you go on and play something which is a bit more rocky or a bit more up tempo or whatever. Um, but it's that it's that way of um, writing a song which will help get your material across to an audience which isn't necessarily going to be your audience. So there is that kind of side to it as well, and certainly as far as. Um, you know, I mean, that's the other thing to remember is it's nine. We've said it many times, but it's nineteen sixty-two. This is the year they got turned down at Decca. You know, it's it's really you know Jurassic in terms of their career, and and that's kind of the context in which they are trying to write these songs. Yeah, they're on tour as somebody else's support act. You know, they're they're going around Scotland in a bus, which. Uh, is always a delightful thing to do, but not necessarily ideal when you're trying to become the world's biggest rock and roll band, you know. So yeah, it, it, it's got, and so much of it, we'll get onto this when we, in future episodes, so much of Please Please Me is like that. It's it's these songs which are, are aiming at kind of targeting different audiences, the Tin Pan Alley approach. And I, 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 the, the nicest thing I can now think to say about P.S. I Love You is that it kind of fits that tradition. It, it's trying to get that kind of audience or trying to play to those kind of crowds rather than crowds that are going to respond to She Loves Me or Twist and Shy or, you know. And it's another one where if you start listening to the cover versions of it, very much like Love Me Do, all you can really hear is people basically doing a copy version, you know, whether it's... Um, you know, the smithereens perhaps doing another version with Andy White on drums, um, you know, in the you know, 2000s or Barbara Dixon, everybody's favourite Barbara Dixon, uh, doing a sort of a slowed down um, kind of kind of folky version, which which is sort of OK, but it's still very much a version of the Beatles one. I have to say my personal favourite, and I'm disappointed I didn't mention this this album in the first one, and it will come up again in the next few weeks has to be uh, The Chipmunks. Uh, the Chipmunks Sings the Beatles, which includes P.S. I Love You, which if you listen to it, and I do highly recommend that you, you go on YouTube and you, and you have a listen. I realise The Chipmunks won't make much in terms of royalties from it, but I think they can live with that. Listen to it, because it sounds for all the world like it's The Beatles until suddenly that high-pitched squeak kicks in and then you know you're in a completely different world. And just to give you an idea of, of just how kind of bomb-proof it was, the Chipmunks Sings the Beatles hits came out in 64, made it to number 14 on the Billboard album charts. <laughs> number 14. Now, that's the crossover of all crossovers. That's quite something uh, to do that. So, you know, bomb proof. Um, and just as a slight aside, um, when I was making some notes on this, I um, subconsciously, um, rather than you know, chipmunks, rather than get the plural chipmunks, for some reason I put it as chips monk. So it's a bit, a bit like the plural of attorney general is not attorney generals, but attorneys general. For some reason, I, I managed to to uh, pluralise it as Chips Monk. I'm sure the Chips Monks will be thrilled to discover that they have been put <laughs> in such a highfalutin company as attorneys general. That's probably the, probably the nicest thing anybody's ever said about them. Mind you, 19, <laughs> 1964, anything with the world Beatles on it would, would, would sell. So there is that side. That, that's really when things kicked off in America. But uh, but even so, you know, you're quite right. I mean, that's uh, that's quite something. Also, Barbara Dixon is fucking great, and I won't hear a bad word against her. So that just to be clear, she did a, she, she did a whole album of um, Beatles covers. 
with actually that's that's the point that came up um um in the first episode as well the fact that people aren't choosing to cover ps i love you because hey it's a great song on its own they're choosing to do it as part of beatles tributes in some yeah, way yeah 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 for sure well, she does a really good version of a day in the life of all things which you wouldn't think anyway that well, we're getting off topic now um but yeah it, it's um I don't know what else to say about because I love you. It's it's one of those songs that just it, I'm aware of its existence, but but um, you know, out with this podcast, I honestly can't remember the last time I had to think about it. Well, considering you can't really think of anything else to say, I say congratulations because we managed to fill about thirty minutes as it is, which uh, um, that's pretty good. It's pretty good, and I like to think that we haven't repeated ourselves in the way that the song has repeated itself. Absolutely. Which is probably as good a point as any to say we should get out while the going's good. Yeah, I think you're probably right. So we can probably just wrap up PS I Love You for today. Um, thanks very much as always. If you want to get in touch with us, you can contact us by email. We are Beatlesstuffology at gmail.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at Beatlesstuffology. And you can find more of my writing at www.jgmacquarie.scot. That's www.jgmcquarie.scot. Please like, rate, review us on whatever podcatcher you're using so that more people can find the show. Fantastic. So next week, we will be kicking off uh, the first track of Please Please Me, which means we are going to be talking about I Saw Her Standing There. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for that. But until then, keep listening. <laughs>